But I really feel like I'm home when I come back here, you know. <laughs> I do. And I'm still waiting for some of these faces to show up in Seville. You know, those, those planes go both ways. <laughs> and I see empty seats on them sometimes. Thank you for your prayers for us and the work there. Uh, I've been out since the 9th of November now in Central America, in El Salvador and Nicaragua, preaching. So I'm kind of at the halfway point now and uh, looking forward to seeing more of you during this time. I'll be down in San Jose for three weeks and uh, I'll be sneaking up here as many times as I can during that time. Now let's look just for a minute at a verse in Isaiah 53. Because this isn't what I have uh, for you this morning, but I was thinking about this verse when Randy and Natalie were singing. Isaiah 53 and verse 10. It says, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. This is a prophecy 700 years before Christ lived and died on the cross. The prophet Isaiah lived and spoke in the land of Israel to the kings of Judah. He warned the people of Israel. And in the midst of his prophecy here in this chapter, he speaks about the suffering of the Messiah when he would come to the earth, when he would live, when he would die. It says he was led in verse 7, is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. Who can read Isaiah 53 and not remember how the Lord Jesus stood silent before Pilate as he was accused. And Pilate said, Behold how many things they accuse you of. And he had, he had nothing to say. He wouldn't speak in his own defense. Not that he couldn't say anything, but he chose not to. He was taken from prison and from judgment, verse 8 says. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. Why? Why? For the transgression of my people was he stricken. This is the difficult thing to this very day for the Jew to understand. The rabbis say that Isaiah 53 speaks about how the nation of Israel has suffered. But it's impossible. The rabbis cannot be right in their interpretation of Isaiah 53 because... It says here in verse 8 that it is a man who is suffering for the transgressions of the people. It says in verse 5, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. We did the sinning and he did the suffering and the dying. And that's what the message of the scripture, Old and New Testament, is about Jesus Christ. He is God's gift of love 
to a human race that has done nothing but sin, turn away from God, ignore him, cross the line, and they're, they're charged with sin. He says he was oppressed and afflicted and brought as a lamb to the slaughter. The Jews knew what the sacrifice was. They took a lamb, they took a, an ox, a bullock, they brought it, they cut his throat, it died. The blood was taken in golden vessels and poured before the altar or sprinkled on the altar. And the person who brought that animal and gave it in that way knew that it was for his sins. And he says this is the what the later the prophet John the Baptist would call the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the Lamb. He's brought as a Lamb to the slaughter. But I'm thinking still, we're getting there, I'm thinking still about verse 11. It says, He shall see of the travail of his soul. That means the fruit, the result of all that his soul went through. The anguish, the suffering, all that he did on Calvary is going to bear fruit. He's going to see it. Now, when people die, they don't say they're going to see anything. They say they're going to close their eyes. But when Christ died, he rose again. And he lives, the scripture says, he is seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And he's going to rule over all this earth one day. No, the politicians don't have an answer to the problems of this old world. But God does. And his answer is Jesus Christ. And he's going to rule. But here... When it says he shall see of the travail of his soul, it means that he's going to be looking at us. People like us, the likes of us. We've trusted him. We've admitted, we've recognized, those of us who are believers, that we are the sinners that Jesus died for on the cross. Maybe there's somebody here today that's never come to that point in your life. Do you know that? That you're the sinner that Jesus died for on the cross? That he did it for you? And those of us who have recognized that and trusted in him, one day we're going to see him. We're all looking forward to that, aren't we? (laughs) But that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about how much he's looking forward to seeing us. It says what he's going to see. He shall see the travail of his soul. We're the ones that brought the anguish to his soul. We're the ones he suffered for. We're the ones whose sins and punishment he bore on the cross at Calvary. And he's going to look at us and he's not going to say, you caused me a lot of suffering. He's not going to say that. The priests sometimes paint Jesus as mad, as angry. You can't go to God through Jesus because... He was mistreated and crucified and you have to go to Jesus through Mary, they say. Who better than his mother to a Jesus por Maria, they say in Spanish. Jesus is not angry. Come unto me, he said. He didn't say come unto my mother. Go to my mother. (laughs) He said, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Go to Jesus through Jesus. See, he will look, he will see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. You know what that means? That when he looks at all of us, the multitude of people saved there in heaven, he's going to say, 
it was worth it. Because he wants to have us there with him. I understand that I want to be with him. That we want to be with him there. But what doesn't fit in human logic is that he wants us to be there. We want to be there. Of course, who doesn't want to be in heaven? But he wants us to be there. And he's not going to be satisfied completely until all our feet are under his table there in heaven. That's what he wants. So satisfied, he is satisfied. He's satisfied and he's going to be happy when he sees us there. But that doesn't take away our responsibility, does it? He's going to be satisfied with us when he sees us on that day. But is he satisfied with the way we're living now? Now let's remember that and do everything we can to satisfy him while we're still here on earth. Okay, that's the first message. Now we're going to move right along to the second one. That was just a little inspiration I felt when Randy and Natalie were singing. Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job. Look it up in the table of contents. Find the page number. When I was a young person, I remember attending a Bible conference when the speaker announced the book of Hezekiah. And all the people immediately began obediently turning to it. And you heard the pages going back and forth, back and forth. And then pretty soon there was a stop, a pause. And laughter went through just like now. They realized, no, there is a king Hezekiah, but not a book. He said, I did that. He said, I did that because I noticed some of the people sitting at the back were starting to nod off to sleep, and I wanted to wake them up. So Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, but no Hezekiah. Job chapter 1 and verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was perfect. And upright, and one that feared God and eschewed evil. And there were born unto him seven sons and three daughters. His substance also was seven thousand sheep and three thousand camels and five hundred yoke of oxen and five hundred she asses and a very great household so that this man was the greatest of all the men of the east. And his sons went and feasted in their houses, every one in his day. And sent and called for their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And it was so that when the days of their feasting were gone about, that Job sent and sanctified them, and rose up early in the morning, and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come once again in the name of the Lord Jesus, give thanks for the privilege that we have to enter into the presence of the Most High God. We thank you for the access we have through Jesus Christ, who is our High Priest, who intercedes for us, who prays for us, who has died for our sins and who lives and intercedes for us. We thank you for him.
We're looking forward to his coming. But we're still here in this world, Father. And we need your help. And we need you to speak to us now from your word. We don't need to hear human wisdom. We don't need to hear man's ideas. We need to have a word from you. And we pray you would be pleased to use the human instrument, the human messenger, imperfect as it is, to speak your word. Minister to us by your Holy Spirit. Take complete liberty to deal with us, to speak to our hearts, to give us whatever we need, comfort, encouragement, correction, admonition, warning, whatever it might be that we need, that you who know us, you know our hearts and you know what we need, Give us, give each person here today something from your word and be glorified. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Job, we don't have time to go into the book of Job today to start studying it. But I'll just say as a way of introduction that the book of Job deals with a problem that has always existed in the human mind. Why people suffer. And the disciples in the New Testament made a mistake about that. In John chapter 9, let's just go and look for one moment. In John chapter 9, verse 1, it says, And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be manifest in him. People believed uh, then, as they many people still do today, that when bad things happen to people, when they suffer and they go through difficulty, that they're being punished for something. And God does send things. He warned the children of Israel in Deuteronomy 28. He warned them in the book of Leviticus. He warned them in the Old Testament that if they strayed away from his paths... He would send pestilence upon the land and there would be sickness and they would lose their physical and their material well-being. He warned them that he could speak to them through difficulties. But it's wrong to assume that every time a person goes through trials and difficulties that there's something wrong in their life and that God is punishing them for it. You can't make that automatic assumption. And the book of Job shows that. Job's three friends, and boy, if we all had friends like those, we wouldn't need any enemies, would we? His three friends dedicated themselves to the ministry of showing Job that he needed to repent. And that's why the beginning of the book of Job is so important, because the beginning of the book of Job, God lays the groundwork for everything that happens in the book. And I'll tell you this, there might be a lot of things you don't understand about what's said in the book of Job, But if you don't get the first two chapters right, the book of Job, if you don't get those first two chapters, you don't pay attention to what's said and done there, then you'll never make any sense at all of the book. But if you take in the first two chapters and understand those, then you can put everything else at least in perspective as you go through all the other things that are said through the book by men. You can put in perspective. You remember what is said in the first two chapters. Because God in the first two chapters, he shows us, first of all, What God's view of Job is. How God looks at Job. And then he shows us what God's conversation about Job is in heaven. What they, in heaven, you know, they talk about this. They talk about things that are happening on earth. They know who we are. 
And they talk about us. Have you seen my servant Job? And the Lord says that. We say, con el pecho sacado in Spanish. He's got his chest out, all of his private. Not in the vain human sense of private, in the sense of satisfaction. And we heard that song, didn't we? And God was satisfied with Job. Not just with the idea he was going to have him in heaven one day, but he was satisfied with him. He looked down and he said, have you considered my servant Job? And I'm sure he smiled when he said it. And then he proceeded to remind Satan of what Job was. Everything that Satan was not. Because Satan is Lucifer, a fallen angel. He was the, the hmm, how do you say that in English? Kerubim protector. Somebody help me figure out the English for that. He was the grand cherubim protector, guardian of the throne of God. And he rebelled. And all of his privilege, he lost. He lost his position. He lost his power, his service there in the heavenly courts. And he was cast down to earth. And the Lord says to him here, in verse 8, the Lord said unto Satan, remember that he was Lucifer. Hast thou considered my servant Job that there is none like him in the earth? Which happened to be where Lucifer was, where Satan was then. No one like him in the earth. Perfect and upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth or turns away from, separates himself from evil. I know you don't know that word escheweth. That's a good old King James word. But we don't talketh like that anymore, do we? (laughs) Never mind. It's a good thing to learn a little vocabulary once in a while. That's a good vocabulary word. You probably won't use it in your conversation with your friends this week. But it's a good word. Who turns away from evil. And the Lord points him out to Satan. And he says, on the earth, these beings that are made a little lower than the angels, look at here. Here's one that didn't have the privilege you had. Here's one who's never seen me in my glory. Here's one who's never been before or around the throne of God in heaven. Here's one who never had angelic powers. But look at him. Look at what he's doing. And boy, that really sticks in Satan's throat. Does Job fear God for naught? He says in verse 9. What's his philosophy? Every man has his price. He serves God because God gives him candy. He says, Hast thou not made a hedge about him and about his house and about all that he hath on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands, and his substance is increased in the land. But put forth thine hand now and touch all that he hath, and he will curse thee to thy face. People love God. For the things they get from God. They like God and they follow God and they serve God only because he gives them things. And if he stops doing that, they'll stop. Mercenaries. And there are what we call mercenary Christians. Rice Christians. People who make some adherence to Christianity. And not just in other continents and other parts of the world. But people even today in our area. Maybe someone here today who has says that they're a Christian or professed in some way 
to believe in Jesus Christ because there's some benefit out, uh, in it for them, or at least because then people stop asking them questions that make them uncomfortable. Oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. But how does God see you? God looked at Job, and he saw someone that he was satisfied with, a human being on earth, not an angel, nobody elevated by any church to the status of saint, a human being on earth, a man who was living a faithful life. And we want to think about him in just a minute, about Job's character and about Job's ministry to his family and about what some things are we can learn from this. But right now, I just want to orient us in case you decide now you want to go study the book of Job. Remember this. God was satisfied with Job, and Satan's thesis was, if you do him enough harm, you take enough things from him or do him enough harm, he'll stop following you. Maybe there's somebody here this morning that has a price, and you haven't thought about that yet. If things went wrong in your life, if you got put to the test, what would you do? Would Satan be right? If certain things were taken away, if certain relationships were broken, if certain favors, if, if certain uh, health that you enjoy, if some of these things were touched or endangered or taken from you, what would you do? Would you still believe in God? Would you still follow Him? Do you have a firm foundation? Now, did God know that Job had a firm foundation? Yes, He knew it. He knew it. He knows everything. But Satan didn't know it. And the people around Job, I don't think, knew it. Even his own wife got to the point where she said, do you still retain your integrity? As he's suffering, she's looking at him, and she says, curse God and die. Get it over with. Maybe that was where euthanasia started. So it seems that no one else knew what the outcome would be. But God did. God doesn't test us to find out what's going to happen. He tests us to bring to light so that we can see it, so we can see what's in us that needs to be corrected, and so that when we're faithful to the Lord, other people can see it. That testimony, when a man in a store takes a diamond and he scratches a piece of glass with it, he's not doing it to find out if it's a diamond. He's doing it to demonstrate that it is. He's showing someone else what it is, you see. And this is what's happening here in the book of Job. Job didn't know what the purposes were. He didn't see the conversation in heaven in chapter 1 and chapter 2. All he saw was when things began to happen in his life and everything began to fall apart. He wasn't uh, privy to the conversation. He didn't know what God's plan was. In fact, he didn't even know that it was uh, the devil and not God. He said... God is punishing me or God is doing these things to me. And he began to wail, why is this happening to me? But he didn't know if he had only known. Well, we know now, don't we? We've been forewarned that sometimes to people who believe in the Lord and follow him, sometimes to people who are living upright lives, God allows things to happen that bring sadness and that bring loss, and he's not punishing them. Job was not being punished. 
And in chapter 2, it says, The Lord said unto Satan, From whence comest thou? Verse 2, Satan said, Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth and walking up and down in it. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job? Here he goes again. That there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and upright man, and one that feareth God and escheweth evil, and still he holdeth fast his integrity, although thou movest me against him to destroy him. What does he say? Without cause. Without cause. Let there be no doubt that God was not punishing Job for anything. He says without cause this, these things were happening to him. And that needs to be remembered as you go through the book. So when the disciples in the New Testament asked that question, uh, who sinned, this man or his parents? Why did they ask that? Because they had the philosophy of Job's friends. And they believed what people believed in those times in the Old Testament. And they still hung on to this, that when someone was born this way, blind like this man, or someone suffered from physical or mental problems, or their life was full of difficulties and trials and losses, this must be a bad person. God must be punishing this person for something. And it wasn't true. The Lord said, neither this man nor his parents. God had a purpose. He had allowed something for a higher purpose. It wasn't for the purpose of punishing or correcting. It was for the purpose that later on, when the Lord Jesus came into this man's life and healed him from his blindness, there would be glory given to God. It's not to ask the question, why, but to ask, what for? And this is what that blind man was going to find out. So we come to the book of Job. We're dealing with the problem of suffering for purification, maybe. Suffering as a part of testimony. Because as part of our testimony, we're called upon to suffer sometimes. To go through loss and pain. And you know, when we get, come to the end of the book and God speaks and he, he finally faces Jonah face to face and begins to speak with him, he never says, I want you to know it's for this reason that I did it. He never answers Job. He says... Basically, if we can reduce everything he says into a few words, he says, but I am God, and you're not. I made the heavens. I made the animals. I feed the animals. I cause the rain. I do. Can you do any of these things? And, of course, Job has to answer every time, no. And finally, he says, I had heard of you, he says, but now I have seen you. Mine eyes have seen you, he says, and I hate myself. I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. And he went silent. And the Lord never explained to him, at least when he spoke there, he never explained to him what had happened about those conversations in heaven. We think maybe he knew them at the end of the book. He knew them, certainly. But when the Lord was giving him his answer, he never went through all of that. He never felt compelled to explain the why of everything to Job. Basically, he was just saying, trust me. Trust me. I'm not making a mistake here. Trust me. And that's what the life of faith is, is to trust God. We live in the information age. We, we want to know things. We want to understand and explain. We want to see a 3D schematic of it. And we want, it, we want it to be moving. We want to see all the gears meshing and the parts and the valves and everything. We want to see how it works, 
And understanding, we say, oh, okay, now I can accept it. Because now I understand. It helps me if I understand it to accept it. And the Lord says, just trust me. I'm not given a 3D schematic. Just trust me. I'm God. I don't make mistakes. So we come to the book of Job. We're dealing with a man, as it says in verse 1. And we want to think about him now just for a few minutes about his character. There was a man. Well, he's saying this in two ways. One, he's saying, like you tell a story and you relate it. And you say, when I was just in Nicaragua, I could say. Now, in the town of Ocotal in Nicaragua, there's a man named Oscar, I could say. He lives there. I'm just telling you he's there. But if I say, now, there was a man. There was a man. He's special. There's something special about this man. So he's telling us who he is, where he lives. But God is really calling our attention to this man. A real man named, in the, again, in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 14. In the book of James, in chapter 5, Job is mentioned by the Lord in the Old Testament. and the New Testament, he's a real person. This is not a parable. This is not a story, an allegory made up. It's, a, it's a, an anecdote, a piece of history from Job's life being given to us to teach us a lesson, to teach us how to deal with things like suffering. And he says here, there was a man. And that man, his name was Job, and that man was perfect, upright, one that feared God and eschewed evil. That's Job described in a nutshell. And we want to think about those words for a moment. When God says that a person is perfect, what does he mean? Because we're always saying, hey, nobody's perfect. God says, there was a man, and that man was perfect. And in the book of James, chapter 3, let's go there. We're going to come back to Job, so don't lose it. It took some of you long enough to find it. I'm just teasing. James chapter 3, verse 2. For in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man and able also to bridle the whole body. Offend not in word. He can control his speech. He's he's the master of his tongue. He's a master of his mouth. You read the book of Proverbs. Did we talk about this before? I can't remember. I'm getting forgetful in my old age. We didn't mention that. That you should read through the book of Proverbs and just make a list. Instead of reading it and trying to study each chapter and make an outline of it, just start at the beginning and say, okay, I'm just going to do this. I have a blank sheet of paper beside me. I'm just going to write down the verse reference of every verse in the book of Proverbs that says something about the tongue or the mouth or the speech. Just that. And just write it down. You will be, if you haven't done it, you will be amazed to find how many comments, how much commentary, how much advice there is in the book of Proverbs and about tons of other subjects too. But just take them one at a time. Take one that interests you like that and start going through it. Go down the book of Proverbs and you'll see it. What a problem. And then in the New Testament and in the epistles, the things the Lord has to say to us about the tongue. Is the two easiest things for us to do are think and talk. And the two biggest areas that we sin in are sins of thought and sins of talk. Those are the two areas. 
We're not talking about robbing banks and stealing from things at work and, and fraud and all these other kind of things. We're not talking about what goes on in the street gangs of Los Angeles and stuff like this. We're just talking about what normal, everyday people who are not in any gang or any mafia and who don't have any criminal record, what normal, everyday people do that offends God every day in their thoughts and in their speech. One of the Ten Commandments says, Thou shalt not covet. It's dealing with our thought life. God demands purity and righteousness in the thoughts. And here he speaks about our speech. And he says, Job was a perfect man. If any man control or offend not in word, the same is a perfect man. Able to bridle or control the whole body. Job was a man who exercised self-control. And when the scripture uses the word perfect this way, this is what it means. It means complete. It means mature. It means a person who, in this case, inclines himself, who leans and, and prefers the things that are good and right. He's made a mature decision about how he's going to live. And he's in control of that. He's able to bridle the whole body. He's a man with self-control. A grown-up man, we might say. Now, Paul, when he speaks to Timothy in the New Testament, he says, flee also youthful lusts. We were talking about this the other day. That youthful lust doesn't mean, it's not just talking about what we call sensual passion or sexual desires. There is that connotation. But typically, that's the way we think of the word uh, lust when we hear it. But lust comes from a word in the original language that means a strong, compelling desire. It doesn't necessarily mean a particular kind of desire. And a youthful lust would just be this kind of thing. What, what do young people like to do? Have fun. Hang out. Have fun. Laugh. Play games. Enjoy. Anything wrong with any of that? Well, if it becomes the consuming passion in your life, if it's a strong, compelling desire that governs your life, Paul says, flee youthful lust. Why? What's wrong with spending? Because it's a time waster. Timothy was a man who was being prepared for ministry. Timothy is a man who's going to serve the Lord. He was giving his life to other people, not for himself. Timothy's a man who, whose life is to serve, not to be served. And Timothy's a life who has to minister to, to churches, to saints, and other places. He's given his life to this. He doesn't have time to lose. Flee youthful lust, he said to Timothy. Grow up. Grow up. A lot of work to do. A lot of help to be given. You need to be a man. You need to grow up. You don't need to be the Peter Pan generation. You know what Peter Pan said? I'm never, never, never going to grow up. Job was mature. He was complete. His, his character was developed and solid. And that's what God is saying about him here. 
That doesn't always happen. We say about some people in Spain, he's a child in the body of an adult. That's a saying. Es un niño en el cuerpo de un adulto. Because the body matures and develops and grows up, obviously there's no restraint on that. It's a natural process. Wouldn't it be nice if it was an equally natural process? Our spiritual and emotional development, the development of our character. But some, some people remain as children. Their body has grown up, but the person living inside of it never has. And God says, Job grew up with his body. Job grew up. He was a man. He was mature. He was complete. He wasn't missing some of the parts. My boys like to put together model airplanes and, and model rockets. And it always frustrates them when they open the box and start going through it and there's a part missing. Now what am I going to do? Again, there's no fin to go on the... What am I going to do now? I have to make one. Any of us have any parts missing in our character? We're letting God work on that to be complete, to be mature. We're letting God help us and show us how to grow up, to be perfect. Self-control is one of the fruit of the Spirit. We find that, don't we, in Galatians 5. Self-control. James 3, he controls his tongue. He's able to refrain the whole body. In this sense, I say, Job was a perfect man. And God is pleased when we are this way. So this is the first thing we see about Job. And remember, Job has children, seven sons, three daughters, and a wife he has. And he has a lot of servants, a very great household. Because who's going to feed 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels and 500 oxen and 500 asses? Who's going to feed all of that? And who's going to clean the corrals? He had a very great household, a lot of people. And so if Job was a man who had an immature character, if Job was a man who said one thing and did another, If Job had some big flaws in his character, then all of these people, starting with his wife and his children, uh uh-huh, starting with them, you're hearing me now, aren't you? And going out, all these people are going to be affected. Now, I'm not worried so much about the camels getting upset. But even Proverbs says that the wise man is kind to his beast, doesn't it? But what about the people? And our lives touch the lives of people around us. And that starts at home. That starts at home. Our lives touch their lives. There were born unto him seven sons and three daughters. And those seven sons and three daughters had a blessing that a lot of times is difficult for sons and daughters to see. Or difficult for them to appreciate what they have now. I don't know too many people, parents, mothers, or fathers who would say that they were perfect, like Job. In fact, I don't think I've ever met one, and certainly not when I look in the mirror. But how difficult is it, very difficult, I think, for children to be grateful, maybe until they're a little older, for the parents that God gave them? These seven sons and three daughters had a blessing. I don't know if they ever recognized what their father was, but God did. They were blessed. They had a man as a father, their father, 
that God talked about in heaven. And God was pleased with him. Oh, but when we live with people, you know, familiarity breeds contempt. And he snores. And I don't like the way he cuts his food. And he scrapes his chair. And he interrupts me when I talk. And we start finding all the little things that irritate us. God was satisfied with Job. He was perfect and upright. His character was perfect and his behavior. Now we're moving a step further into it. His behavior. Because character influences behavior. Behavior flows from character. You can put on a front and you can remember your, your manners that your mama taught you when you're supposed to. When you're with company or in some situation. But that ain't who you really are. Who you really are is who you are at home. And who you really are is the, uh, reflected by the decisions you make in your workplace. Every day in day-to-day life. How it works out. What do you laugh at? What do you agree to do? Or what do you refuse to do? What kind of company do you choose to be in? What kind of things do you enjoy? How does it work out? Because the way these things work out is they come out of your character. And sometimes we do things because we're worried about what people think or what's going to happen to us if we don't. But most of the times the decisions we make are because that's the way we are. That's the way we are. And he was upright. It's talking about his behavior. It means upstanding. Correct, it means. It means he walked in a straight line without twisting or turning to one side or the other. This is the way Job lived. So he had a man, we have here a man whose character was perfect, mature. A man whose behavior was upright. And it tells us now why he was that way. Number three. Why? He feared God. That's why. One that feared God. Proverbs 1 and verse 7. Nobody's learned that in their memory verses yet. Proverbs 1, 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the what? What is the beginning? Did I tell you what my daughter Elizabeth said when she was five, I think? We were reading, we read Proverbs at the table. At the, at the lunch table or the supper table, a lot of times, uh, we sit down and we'll, we'll eat first and then we'll clear the table and we'll get the Bible out and we read as a family. Family should be together and not just sitting around watching TV or playing with the Xbox. That is not quality family time. When you're just thinking about running around the corner and shooting him before he shoots you. That's not quality family time. (laughs) So we sit there and we read. And we read a chapter of Proverbs, for example. Chapter 1 on day 1 of the month. Chapter 2, day 2 of the month. We just read it. Read it through. And then we'll ask everybody at the table to just say one verse that impressed them. And I always start with the youngest. Because they have the hardest time remembering. And inevitably, somebody else always says, he got my verse. You know? So, well, pick another one. I can't remember. We'll read a little again. Pick one. But 
everybody picks a verse and they have something to say. Well, we were reading in chapter 1 and we got to this verse. And she said, the verse that says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of, of knowledge or the beginning of wisdom, it says. In another translation and another verse in Proverbs. And I said, what does that mean, the beginning? And she said, oh, that's like the first step on a trip. And I said, boy, you should write a commentary. <laughs> I would have said, well, now the Hebrew word for beginning and Go look it up in the dictionary and all this and all the places they use the word beginning in the Bible and all this. And she just said, it's the first step of a trip. She hit the nail right on the head. The fear of the Lord, my friend, that's not an accessory you can add to fill out your uh, curriculum, to fill out your, your, um, your resume. That's right. You knew what I was thinking. Curriculum is the word in Spanish. I was lost in Spanish there for a second. You can't just put that on at the end. I did this. I studied this and this. And I worked in this position and that position. And oh yeah, and I had the fear of the Lord too. You didn't start the trip. You don't start to grow. You hear what I'm saying. You don't really start to know God until you start there. That is the beginning the beginning you start there and people don't like that word today they don't want anybody talking about fear we're not going to be afraid we want to feel good we're the feel good generation and don't talk to us about this because America more and more North America is hedonistic we live for pleasure we live for fun that's what life is all about have fun Make money so that we can spend it on things that help us to have fun or feel comfortable. And that's all there is, they think. And so if you talk about fear, they say, oh, you're going to try to scare me into being a Christian. No, I'm just going to give you a piece of sound advice. Talked to some men one time outside of a village in Spain, December the 21st, the shortest day of the year. They were sitting as a walled village with one gate on one side and one on the other. And they were all sitting outside the gate watching the sunset, sitting on a, a little wall, sort of like this, and just four or five of them sitting there. And we were talking to them about the Lord, and they said, I, I don't talk, don't, don't try to tell us about this. We don't want to hear about this. You're going to scare us or try to scare us with hell and all of these things. I said, does anybody here have a cigarette lighter? And uh, one of the men got out a cigarette lighter. I guess he thought I was going to smoke a cigarette while I talked to them. <laughs> I took the cigarette lighter and lit it. And I said, now, who'd like to stick their fingertip in this flame? There were four or five of them sitting around. Who'd like to stick their fingertip in this flame? And one of them, he's kind of the bravo guy of the group, you know. And uh, he said, oh, I'll do it. I'm not afraid. And moving his finger back and forth. I said, a little bit slower. A little bit slower. He said, oh, I'm not afraid. See, that doesn't hurt anything. I said, no, stop it right there. No, 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 no. It's okay, you don't want to stop here. How about your tongue? Stick out the tip of your tongue. Let's put that there. He didn't want to. And now the rest of them are all quiet. Now they're not making smart aleck remarks or anything. And I said, you know what? You see this little flame? Hell is a lot bigger than this. And it's not a story that priests invented. And it's not a story that we made up. If you don't eat your green beans, the monster's going to get you. 
and this kind of stuff. It's not a story we made up. It's a place that God warns us about. And if you can't stick the tip of your tongue or the tip of your finger, even for one second, in this little bitty flame, you just think about that. And you go home tonight, before you close your eyes and go to sleep in that bed, you remember this flame, I told him. Now Mike's getting upset. He wants to get up and preach about fires and putting out fires and flames. I want to have him up here in a minute. The fear of the Lord is good. Fear of punishment for doing wrong is not a bad motivation, according to Scripture. Better to love righteousness and do and do good. Better to love to please God. Better to love Him. But if you don't go through the gate of the fear of the Lord, you can't go down the journey of loving God. You don't really know what it's like to be loved by God until you understand what God is like. And you listen to, real careful to what I'm going to say. If you never feared God, with my hand on the Bible, if you never feared God, you don't know God. I'm not afraid of God. But I respect Him. And I am fearful of displeasing Him. His wrath is real. His righteousness is real. His power is real. I do not want to displease Him. I do not want to dishonor Him. I'm fearful of doing or saying anything that would bring dishonor on the name of God. That would give anybody a reason to say or do anything against God because of me. It would be my fault. And that's what reverence is. I'm afraid of of offending or doing damage or working against the purposes of God. I know that he's bigger and stronger than I am. I know that he's wiser. I don't have a high self-concept. Oh, maybe I need to go in for a little counseling <laughs> so they can improve my self-image. Ah, I'd rather be like Job. Now that I have seen you, he says, I hate myself. I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Oh, that's where you got to start. That's where you got to start. But you see, Job had gotten to that point in his life. He was a person who feared God. And God doesn't say in heaven... Oh, look at Job now. This is what happens. You know, human beings, they get so twisted in the way. Poor thing. You know, I just want him to love me. And here he fears me. I don't want to hear Gabriel. Go down there and tell him not to fear me anymore. He doesn't do that. The Lord is, is satisfied with the way Job is. He's a perfect man. In his character. He's an upright man in his behavior. He's a man who fears God. And because he fears God, this is the way he lives. The choices that he makes are because of his understanding of God and his relationship with God. He doesn't fear man. He fears God. And some people spend all of their lives being afraid of men, being afraid of human beings, fearing men and trying to impress men or please men or worried about what people are going to think. And we see them by the hundreds and the thousands in Spain and even in Central America. Now they hear the gospel, but they don't want to enter into thinking about applying it to their lives because what will the neighbors say? 
What will people say? What will people think? They'll think I'm a little cuckoo. They'll exclude me. They won't talk to me anymore. And they're worried. They're afraid of men. And you know what? When you leave this earth, when you close your eyes for the last time and go into eternity, you're not going to be standing before men who are going to judge you. You better remember that. You're going to be standing before God. You're going to be standing before God. Don't fear those, the Lord Jesus said, who can destroy your body and after that have nothing that they can do. He said, but he who is able to destroy the body and afterwards cast the soul into hell, I say unto you, fear him. Fear him, he says. Now, that's advice from the Lord Jesus. Not from this crazy missionary from Spain. That's advice from the Lord Jesus. I say unto you, fear him. Job did. And he, it says, as a result of that, he feared God and he, come on, say it. Let me hear that good old King James word. He eschewed evil. Not I chewed. (laughs) Eschewed. He eschewed evil. He turned away from evil. Because evil is all around us. We live in a world of it. And you can't walk down the street without seeing it. It's in the way people dress. It's in the way people talk. It's in the way people behave. It's in the, the showcase windows in the store, the display windows. It's on the screens. It's on the telephone. It's on the Internet. It's everywhere. It's in the workplace. Opportunities abound. All you have to do is listen to what some people say, and you can be defiled just by the way they talk. We pick it up in the world we live in, like somebody with a a dark blue suit on walking through a cotton mill. You don't have to touch anything. It just sticks to you in this world. That's bad enough. But he says, Job turned away from evil. What about it? You turn away from it? You face it every day. I face it every day. And when I get out of bed in the morning and I spend my time, and I hope you do this, I hope you read the Word and pray. I hope you're not too busy a person to read and pray before you go out into that big old world full of sin. It's just waiting to, to gobble you up. I hope you don't get in too big a hurry to stop before the day begins. And be in this book. Read a little bit and say, help me, Lord. Pray. Help me to turn away from evil today. Help me to fear you and to turn away from evil. Help me to grow up spiritually. Help me to be an upright person, Lord. Job was that way and he pleased God. God blessed him. He had seven sons and three daughters who were blessed to have a father like Job. Men, now I know the, the ladies get a lot of good teaching here in this assembly. Now I'm going to say something just to the men right now. We have a men's meeting. You ladies don't have to leave. It is very important. And those of you who aren't fathers, not married, not husbands or fathers yet, it's still important. You listen, the earlier you learn this, the better off you're going to be. It is extremely important for you to keep a watch 
on your own character. When I say you, you notice I'm not doing my finger like this. You saw where it pointed, didn't you? You saw where it pointed, didn't you? I'm including myself. It's extremely important. Because our lives touch other people. And our lives affect other people. They're models for other people. And whether we say anything or not, what we are is preaching a sermon. It's teaching a lesson. It's giving a study. And it's affecting the people who are around us all the time. You have a ministry. You might not ever stand up here in this. And you don't have to to have a ministry. Most ministry, and, and I think I have room to say this. Most ministry takes place outside of this little wooden box. This ain't where it's happening. This ain't where it's happening. It's happening out there. It's happening in the homes every day. You see? And what you are, what you are is a ministry. What you are affects other people. Ring, oh, if that's so-and-so, I'm not here. What? You're not here, if that's so-and-so. And one young woman at a workplace, she went and the, got a new job and started working there. And she told him that she was a Christian. And the boss said, that's all right. And then the phone rang. He said, if that's so-and-so, I'm not here. Now what's she going to do? <laughs> she, she answered the phone and it was so-and-so. And she said, uh, well, he said if it's so-and-so, he's not here. <laughs> He grabbed the phone from her. He said, oh, I don't know what she's talking about. Some kind of confusion here. We're joking around. And, and then when he got out of the tight spot, he hung up the phone. He gave her what for. And she said, I can't lie. She said, you might be able to, but I can't. And he said, okay, well, you don't answer the phone anymore. She said, that's fine with me. <laughs> no more answering the phone. Because you're too truthful. What do we teach our children at home? There are a thousand situations like that. Perfect, upright, fear God, issued, turned away from evil. Our children need to know that we're that way, that we're men that turn away from evil. We don't say, oh, well, you know, people quote Psalm 103. Oh, he knows our flesh. He knows that we're weak. And people say that, and it's true, we are. But people say it like an excuse, like God knows I'm going to sin. It's all right with him for me to sin. Listen, God doesn't sin. And God never gives us permission to sin. We do not have permission. God never lies. And he never gives us permission to lie. He can't. He can't do that. See. So what we are is a ministry. And the, and the sisters know it. That what they are in the home is a ministry. And that's why in First Peter 3, he says that they can win their unbelieving husbands without a word by what they are in the home. What they are. Because that man who sleeps by your side, he knows if you're really changed or if that's just Sunday behavior. He knows if you just talk that way when you go out with your Christian friends or if you're that way in the home all the time. He knows by what you are. And our children know us men by what we are. They see what kind of character we have. Well, this man had seven sons, three daughters, he had a, a household full of blessing. He had servants, all kinds of animals. And these animals are like, every one of them would be like having a car or a truck today. Because that's what they use the animals for work. Or like having a tractor. He's like saying he has um, um, 7,000 uh, motorcycles, 3,000 cars, 
or pickup trucks, 500 tractors. And this is like saying all the things he has, because this is what he has all this for. It's work. Now the sheep are, I know they're not pulling plows. The sheep are producing wool. But you see what I'm saying. This, is, this man is a man who's blessed and who has a household full of industry and servants. And his sons are grown. They go, it says in verse 4, they feast in their houses. In their houses, everyone in his day, maybe this was their birthday, we don't know. Or maybe it was just the custom they have in that part of the world that they took turns. You know, I invite you, come to my house. And when they're there eating, then they say, now please, Fadda, Fadda, you must come to my house, right? You have to come. I, I came to your house. Now you have to come to my house. And we, they came to our house to eat when we lived in Nazareth. And uh, I said, please eat more. They wouldn't eat much. I said, please, fadari, fadari, eat some more. And I said, for my mother's sake, for my father's sake. And finally she ate some. And the, her husband began to laugh at her. He said, you're letting him do to you what we do to them now. He began to laugh. So she said, just wait. Now you have to come to my house. So they began to say, okay, it's your turn to come to my house. And when we went to their house, boy, she waited on my plate. I didn't think I was ever going to finish eating. It was taking turns. And there, each one in his turn, everyone his day, and sent and called for their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And so it was when the days of their feasting were gone about, were finished, Job sent and sanctified them. Now this is where we want to spend the rest of our time today, just thinking for a few minutes together about verse 5. He rose up Early in the morning, that's a custom of godly people, to rise up early, to meet with God. Don't give God the leftovers at the end of the day. The first and the best for him. He rose up early. I must see the face of God before I see the face of man, someone said. And offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. Let's see now. Seven sons. One burnt offering. Two. Three. Four. Five. Six. Seven burnt offerings. A burnt offering is when they take the animal. And uh, first of all, they slit his throat. And he's bled. They take the blood. And they apply it however they're going to. And then they take the body. The whole body of the animal. Except for some little parts that they cut off. They the whole thing and put it up on the altar and the whole thing has to be burnt. The whole animal, all for God, all burned up. Well, that takes a while. And there's seven of them. And then three daughters. One for one daughter, one for the other daughter, and one for the third daughter. That's ten burnt offerings. Burnt offerings take a long time. And they said he offered one for each one of them. So here's Job, and this is the ministry of a man who was a patriarch. We live in a world today that's increasingly matriarchal. Where uh, the mother, the wife, and the mother are the ones who really take care and uh, spiritually and otherwise, of course, all the work that goes into a household. Man's work is from son to son, but woman's work is never done. Can I get an amen on that, ladies? <laughs> But men don't often work in the home like they should. They're not often teaching their children like in the book of Proverbs. The father taught his children, son, listen, son, to my words. 
The men are not often spending time, uh, investing time in the character of their children, the development of their children. They're not spending time praying for their children. This man is praying for them. He rose up early in the morning to spend time in prayer for seven sons and three daughters. How long of a time do you figure he spent? Because when they offered the burnt offering, they prayed. They stood often and prayed or, or knelt or, or faced to the ground and prayed while the offering was consumed. He's praying for them. Why is he doing that? He's not even sure they need it. He says, he said here, uh, it may be that my sons have sinned. He wasn't there with them, but he raised them. He was a man who was perfect and upright. He feared God and turned away from evil. And these are adult children. They have their own houses. And he's still concerned about them. He's praying for them. Do we do that? You know, the first time I thought about that, I had to stop and ask myself. I don't think I said, I'm praying enough for my children. Not that I wasn't praying for them. But when I look at the time Job spent in prayer, I wonder how important do we think this is. All this time he spent praying for them because he said that maybe they have sinned and cursed God or blasphemed, another version says, in their hearts. Now, they wouldn't say it out loud, but maybe they had a wicked thought. Maybe they had a thought. You see, he was concerned about that in their heart, in their thought life. Oh, they're not out uh, robbing other people and... They're not doing, they're not committing immorality, but they might have had evil thoughts. And he was so concerned about their thoughts that he went and offered all those sacrifices and prayed for them. Our children need prayer. Our little children need prayer. Look what a world they have to grow up in. Our teenage children need prayer. And the ones who are grown, are married and grown, they're out of the home, they're living on their own, don't forget to pray for them. Job was praying. He was praying. One of the blessings and one of the responsibilities, tremendous responsibility of a father. I'm saying father because we're talking about Job, okay? Pray for those children. If you're too busy to pray for your children, to intercede before God for them, you're too busy. There must be time. To pray for those children. Because you can do things in prayer that you can't do with your hands. Or the, God can take our prayers and he can work in people's hearts. Amen. He can do things. As Hudson Taylor, I believe it was, used to tell people, you must learn to move men through God. Amen. There are things that you can't accomplish. You teach, you warn, you instruct, you correct. But it's so hard to get into that heart, isn't it? And we're praying. You see, let's renew our commitment. And if we don't have one, if we haven't really made one, let's make one. Lord, my job, one of my jobs is to spend time in prayer for the children you gave me. I must do it. They need it. And it's part of my ministry. Not this. Don't aspire this kind of thing because it's a lot better to have calluses on your knees to be a praying saint when we get to heaven only when we get to heaven are we going to know all the things that were done through prayer that were never done 
maybe through Bible studies and sermons, but through prayer. And I pray every time I preach. The Bible says, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ. I pray that every time. You need prayer in the ministry, the public ministry of the word, but we need prayer in our homes. We need prayer for our children. They need it every day. When they walk out that door, they need to be covered with prayer. I'm going to quit by once. I have three minutes. Think with me. It'll last. He doesn't think I can do it. All right. Hollis. Job didn't know if his sons had sinned, and he offered all those sacrifices for him on account of maybe. Now think with me. When God looks down from heaven at the human race, at us, his creatures, when God looks down from heaven at us, at me and you, he doesn't say, it may be that they have sinned. He doesn't say that, does he? What does he say? When God looks down from heaven, it says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. For all have sinned. When God looks down from heaven, He says in Romans 3, there is none good. He looked over them all. He saw them all. From head to foot, from beginning to end, all the people on the planet earth that ever lived, He said, there is none good. None that doeth good. None that seeketh after God. They're all turned away. They're all become unprofitable. There's no maybe here. You hear what I'm saying? There's no maybe here. And God sent a sacrifice greater than all those sacrifices that Job offered there for his sons and daughters. He spent all of that time bringing those animals and slaying those animals and burning those animals and praying to God. That was a great work that he did. But it was one for each one. Seven sons, three daughters, ten animals. One for each one. What would it be like if God had to do something like that for each one of us? For our sins and for all of our sins. If you only sin one time a day, that's 365 a year. That's 3,650 in 10 years. There's a few people here that are more than 10 years old today. What kind of a sacrifice can cover all those sins for all those people? What kind? The Lord Jesus Christ. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Not the seven sons and three daughters of Job. The sins of the world. And that's why we preach Jesus Christ. Because He is the only one, no saint, no sacrament, no philosophy. Nothing can take away the sins of the world. No amount of works that you can do, promises made to God, tears that you shed, nothing of that can take away your sins. Nothing can get rid of that sin. Only the death of Christ on the cross. Only the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God looked down from heaven and He said, They have sinned. And He sent. And He sanctified us. Job had to do this continually, it says. Continually, continually. Every time they met, every time they had a banquet, every time they got together, 
There goes Job the next day with the offerings. They said, Papa's up there. You know what he's doing. Every time we meet, he's up there offering the offerings again. The book of Hebrews said, Christ suffered once for sin. No, sir, he's not sacrificed and it's not renewed and it's not continued in the mass. He suffered once for sin. He's not suffering anymore. He's seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. He did it once. Every priest stands continually in the temple offering the same sacrifices day after day that can never take away sin. But this man, when he had suffered once for sin, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. God satisfied with what Jesus Christ did. With that sacrifice, God is satisfied. That's enough to take away anybody's sins. Now, who here today needs sins taken away? You don't have to bring an animal. You don't have to promise God anything. God already sent the sacrifice, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And every time I celebrate the Lord's Supper, I think about it. He did that for me. He already sent and took away my sins. He rose up early. He got right down to the job. He sent his son, and he took away my sins. So... Job has lessons for us, those of us who are believers, about our character and about our ministry. But right here in verse 5, we have a wonderful illustration of what God the Father did to take away our sins. The sacrifice has been made. And what I want to know this morning is, have you trusted in Jesus Christ? Have you said, Lord, that was for me. I'm the one Jesus died for on the cross. May the Lord help you to realize that today. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks in the name of the Lord Jesus for this time we've been able to spend together for these lessons from your word. We pray that you will bless them to our hearts and help us to find an application. Help us to remember how important the ministry of prayer is and to be encouraged to pray, to know that we're not wasting time when we're praying. We pray for those, Lord, who maybe this morning for the first time have discovered that it was for their sins that God sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross, that perfect sacrifice, that they might trust in him and find forgiveness of sins and eternal life. We commit ourselves into your hands and pray your blessing on us as we part now in Jesus' name. Amen.